If you have your Bibles and would like to read along with me, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in the New Testament this Lord's Day. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such, and to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge ye them that are such. The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. If any man love not the Lord, Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our text this Lord's Day taken from Proverbs chapter 15 
verse 24. Wherein we read, The way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. Why did God create heaven and hell? Very simply, in order to glorify himself. In order to glorify, on the one hand, His mercy and His grace. And, on the other hand, to glorify His justice and His holiness. For any who enter into the everlasting delights and rest of heaven do not do so by their own merits, by the riches of God's free grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And any who are cast into the everlasting torments and loneliness of hell are for their own guilt and rebellion against God consigned there. If therefore both heaven and hell glorify God, And if our chief end in life is to glorify God, it must bring honor to the Lord our God and profit to man to study the doctrines of heaven and hell. This we will do over the next two Lord's Days. This Lord's Day we will consider the blessedness of heaven Next Lord's Day, we will consider the curse of hell from the same text. If I were to ask you, how many of you want to go to heaven when you die, I dare say that all would raise their voices and their hands in unison. But do you only want to go to heaven because you do not want to go to hell? Heaven is, dear ones, the particular, peculiar, unique habitation of Almighty God. It is the very throne of God. Heaven is a place where holiness, love, peace, knowledge, life, and joy reign Dear ones, heaven is only your home if Christ is your city of refuge to whom you have fled to find safety and security from the avenging wrath of a holy God. If you believe you can live the way you want to now and yet find entrance into the unspeakable glories of heaven at your death, you are grossly deceived. Why, in fact, would one even who has despised the very things of God in this life, why would such a one who has turned his back upon the invitations of Christ for life and forgiveness, 
Why would one who has loved and embraced his sin and the pleasures of this life rather than Christ, and has merely gone through the outward motions of worship here upon the earth, why would such a one want to spend all eternity in a place of holiness where the chief joy and delight of all the saints and of all the angels in heaven will be the very God that such a one has despised, ignored, and neglected all of his life. Dear ones, if you want to go to heaven, shouldn't your life here upon earth reflect that desire? If your citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says, is the case of all Christians in Philippians 3.20, shouldn't your heart ache to be in your homeland? Shouldn't your speech tell people that you are presently resident aliens in a foreign land while you're here upon the earth? For this was the testimony of Abraham, the father of all those who believe, according to Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to this testimony concerning Abraham, verses 9 through 10 and verse 13. By faith he, that is Abraham, journeyed in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that is, tents, movable tents, impermanent, temporary tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, no longer tents that can be moved, but for a city who hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Is that your testimony today? That you are a stranger, an alien, a pilgrim, a sojourner upon this earth? Or have you pitched a permanent place to live here upon the earth so that this has become your homeland? The earth has become your homeland rather than heaven. I submit that a study of heaven will reveal to each of us where our heart really is. For where our treasure is, whether in heaven or upon earth, there will our heart be also, Jesus said. Where is your treasure today? Is your chief treasure in loved ones? In the pleasures of this life? In your work? In your riches? In your education? Or is your chief treasure in Jesus Christ and in his heavenly inheritance. The main points from 
The first part of our text in Proverbs 15.24 are the following. First of all, heaven is an incentive to godly living. And secondly, heaven is the realization of God's promises. First of all then, heaven is an incentive to godly living. From our text in Proverbs 15:24, it says, "The way of life is above to the wise. The way of life. What is the way of life? The way of life, dear ones, is that path or that road by which a sinner who is justly condemned to everlasting death in hell comes to know and receive everlasting life. This way of life is the means, dear ones, by which one who is dead in their trespasses and sins comes to be raised by the power of Almighty God from His tomb of hopelessness and despair wherein His sins have buried Him. Dear ones, if I could tell you a way in which you could live to be a thousand years old and enjoy good health and a sound mind for that entire period, wouldn't you be interested I'm sure you would. But I have even better news for you today. I can tell you the way and the only way in which you can live forever. Enjoy forgiveness of sin. Secure, obtain perfect righteousness. Joy unspeakable and fellowship with the one true living God. The way of life, dear ones, is Jesus Christ Himself. The way of life is Christ who is Himself Jacob's ladder and our ladder to heaven, according to John 1.51. Heaven is opened to man through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the cross that becomes the ladder that bridges heaven and earth. The Lord Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. John 14.6 Isn't it absolutely amazing how many people would flock to hear the way to live a mere thousand years here upon the earth, but so few would come to hear how to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. Doesn't it boggle your mind? Of course, it boggles your mind if you have been enlightened to see the glories of Christ and the heavenly reward He has prepared for those who love Him but it only indicates the blindness of those who do not see the infinite value of that heavenly reward. Let us not be deceived into thinking that this way of life is broad and 
will find many people on it. For the Lord Jesus has stated ever so clearly that the broad way which most people in this world travel is an inclusive and comfortable way wherein people may believe whatever they want to believe and live in the way they want to live. But this way of life is different. The broad way leads to everlasting destruction in hell. But this way of life is a narrow way, Jesus says. And it is revealed by Christ alone in the gospel of salvation. And only a few people, by comparison with the many who've walked the broad path, only a few people, by comparison, find it. This narrow path leads to everlasting life in heaven. This narrow way of Christ, dear ones, is not inclusive. It is exclusive. It is God's way, not man's way. The narrow way of Christ, dear ones, is, yea, even uncomfortable. We must painfully crucify our sinful desires of the flesh rather than indulge them. But in the end, there is life, peace, joy, to which nothing on earth can possibly compare. Note secondly, from our text, about this way of life, that it is said to be above to the wise. The way of life is above to the wise. It is not beneath in hell, but it is above in heaven. There, dear ones, is the final destiny of all who walk by the way of life found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But although this way of life leads to heaven above and is set before us by God, It begins, nevertheless, here upon the earth. That's the goal, that's the end, but this way of life does begin here upon the earth when we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Dear ones, even as Israel lived in temporary tents and moved from location to location while in the wilderness, So we do likewise fall here upon the earth in our temporary homes, in our temporary bodies. And while Israel endured the trials of the wilderness, she was to yet look to the land of promise which God had made for them, wherein their temporary tents and wilderness wanderings would be cast away. And they would find cities in which they could dwell and no longer be moved here and there. A permanent dwelling in the land of promise. So we are to do likewise, even now, as aliens and pilgrims in this world in which we live. We are to look forward to the heavenly land of promise, 
whose builder and maker is God. An unspeakable place of glory where we will cease to be aliens and foreigners, cease to live in temporary dwelling places, and will take up an everlasting residence of joy never to be moved again. In other words, the Lord has set heaven before us as a reward. Just as he had set the promised land before Israel, he sets heaven before us as a reward which is to motivate us to walk in the way of life while we are yet here upon the earth. Consider how the Lord did the same with Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Yes, there's pleasures in this world. There's pleasures involved in sin. They're temporary. They're not lasting. They're fleeting. They're here and gone. And they're a cheap, cheap imitation of the pleasures that God gives to his people. Continuing on in verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He was looking to the reward. Interestingly, the writer, the apostle says here that he esteemed the reproach of Christ. That certainly shows the continuity of the covenant. He esteemed the reproach of Christ. He saw himself suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ and not following all of the riches, the pleasures, the education, the power, the honor of Egypt, but forsaking it all to suffer with God's people. And he said, because of the heavenly reward that awaits me, that's far better than anything I can find in Egypt. And he had the ability to enjoy it all. Believe me. You see, it was the reward which provided an incentive and a motivation to Moses to press forward and to obey the Lord. Dear ones, it is very common for us to work very hard when we know that there is a reward that awaits us. Children, listen carefully. You will ordinarily apply yourselves to work much more diligently when you're promised by your, your parents a very special privilege or reward for a job well done. Isn't that the case? When your parents promise you a reward, a special privilege, boy, you really want to get in there and you really want to work hard and do a good job. Adults, when you will 
uh, spend extra time at work if necessary to get a project done when there is a bonus promised at the completion of the project. Likewise, dear ones, our Heavenly Father knows the encouragement that a reward also provides to His weak, frail children who become discouraged over their besetting sins, who become afraid of persecution, who become weary of trials and afflictions, and who are tempted to seek the pleasures of this life in exchange for their communion with Jesus Christ. That reward which encompasses all that Christ has prepared for those who have embraced Him by faith alone and who evidence their faith by love and good deeds is designated in the Scripture as everlasting life or as heaven. Heaven and the blessings associated with it are designated a reward. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, Verses 11 and 12, we read, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. Therefore, heaven and its blessings are set before the Christian as that which he should ever keep before him as he faces various trials in life, struggles, conflicts, and temptations in this life. Heaven should always be before the Christian. Are rewards in the covenant of grace offered and granted due to the merits of our own works? Absolutely not. If a child does precisely what his father commands him to do, the child by his obedience does not obligate the father to give him anything else, anything more if he's simply done what his father has told him to do. For the child has only done that which was his duty to do. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6.1 The child, you see, can make no legitimate claim to a reward from his father. He cannot obligate his father or bind his father because he is obeyed. However, if the father freely chooses out of his generosity and love to bestow reward upon his child in order to motivate him to a cheerful obedience, the father obligates himself. The child does not obligate the father. The father obligates himself to gladly grant the reward to the child for his cheerful and faithful obedience. Likewise, dear ones, the reward of heaven is not something the believer obligates God to pay, but something which God has obligated himself by his own gracious, 
free and sovereign will to pay to believers in Jesus Christ. The merit that earned that reward is not the believer's obedience, but Christ's obedience. And yet the reward is related by way of God's sovereign and gracious appointment to the gospel obedience of the believer. The Lord graciously works within us both to will and to do His good pleasure, according to Philippians 2. Verse 13. And then God graciously rewards us for that which He has accomplished in and through us. Now that is grace. It is important to keep in mind, dear ones, that we are not rewarded on account of our works. That language is never used in the Scripture. But rather, according to our works as taught in Matthew 16:27, According, not on account of. How does the reward of heaven motivate the child of God to walk in the path of life? I'm going to give you some, some specific examples here before we move on to the second main point. How does the reward of heaven motivate the child of God to walk in the path of life. Well, let me say at the outset, the very weaknesses, sins, temptations, fears, or trials that we face here upon the earth are promised to be removed forever from us in heaven. For example, we know our own besetting sins We all know them very well in our lives. We mourn over them, we grieve over them, we know them. Whether they be lustful desires, whether they be pride and selfishness, envying the gifts and graces of others, sinful outbursts of anger, fear of man, circumstances, or fear of the unknown, deceit in lying and in cheating, hypocrisy in going through the mere outward motions of of worship to the living God, the love of money, the love of pleasures of this life, or forsaking and neglecting Jesus Christ as our first love. Whatever the besetting sin may be, we know what they are. How many times have you fallen into that same sin and cast yourself upon Christ in faith and repentance just to fall again and to repeat the cycle seemingly endlessly to your grief and sorrow to almost the point of despair. Would not the contemplation and meditation upon the final destruction of that awful cycle of sin, of that besetting sin, bring great encouragement and perseverance to you as you cling to the certain hope of your heavenly reward. Will not the holiness of your heavenly home work within you, dear ones, a greater desire to be holy here upon the earth? 
Another example. What about those many physical weaknesses and pains that you suffer from day to day in this life, at times, perhaps, again, even despairing of life itself? It's basically almost saying, I don't, I don't even want to go on living anymore because of this pain. Would not the certain reward of heaven bring comfort and consolation to you that the time of your suffering will be no longer remembered? Because God will transform these corruptible bodies into incorruptible bodies and capable of suffering the slightest pain ever again? Wouldn't that bring some comfort and encouragement as you lay hold of that truth? So that even if you suffer for the remainder of time, the remaining years that you have here upon the earth, to contemplate an eternity with God in a body that will never suffer that pain ever again. Or another example. What about the many fears that plague your life? A fear of losing loved ones in death. The fear of your own death. The fear of suffering for your faith. The fear of man. The fear of that which is unknown to you. Again, taking the time to spend in glorious contemplation and meditation of heaven where you will never ever have the slightest hint of these fears again. Dear ones, we do not fear what we will gain. Rather, we only fear what we will lose. The reason we will never fear again in heaven is because all will be gained and nothing will be lost in heaven. Therefore, there will be nothing to fear. Another example, what, what about the trials you face every day wherein your faith is sorely tested? They may not even be real big trials when compared to the trials of others. But the wear and the tear upon your spiritual and emotional stability is wearisome to the point of collapse. You might even feel ashamed that such trials test your faith to such a degree of anxiety. But they do. And to be perfectly honest, they do test you. And they try you. Would it not be a great encouragement to you to reflect upon the fact that in heaven faith will give way to sight. There will be no trials of faith for there will be no trials in heaven and there will be no faith in the promises of God for all the promises of God will be fully realized. That would be a great encouragement to you if you took the time to meditate and reflect upon heaven, the glories of heaven. Finally, one last application, illustration. What about the loneliness you face in feeling all alone in this life? At times the loneliness is so overwhelming and painful that you do not want to go on living. Oh dear one, the fellowship and communion in heaven will never be broken. No one there will be isolated from perfect communion and fellowship with God with the angels 
or with the glorified saints. It is sin that breaks fellowship and communion. But there will be no sin in heaven to break that fellowship and communion. Will not suffering a few years of loneliness, if that's what God calls you to suffer here upon the earth, will it not be worth the unbroken communion of God? The unbroken communion with the saints forever in heaven. This, dear ones, is how the reward of heaven, I would submit to you, motivates the Christian to walk in a way, in the way of life while he or she is still upon this earth. The second main point is this. Heaven is the realization of God's promises. Why is the way of life above to the wise? Underscoring the word above. Why is the way of life above to the wise? Because that is where the scripture speaks of heaven being. And heaven is the realization and perfection of all of God's promises made to his beloved children. Under this main point, I would like to answer some questions that are often asked about heaven. And certainly cannot give exhaustive answers to these questions. But we'll seek to give some answers to these questions. First question, what will heaven be like? The glory and happiness of heaven, dear ones, cannot be expressed in human words as we see from the testimony of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, where we read, How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. How do you explain a place so full of holiness and righteousness, so complete in joy and happiness, so perfect in peace and security, so abounding in fellowship and communion that anything to which you might want or try to compare it to upon the earth would only scratch the surface. Apostle Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I have not seen nor ear heard the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You can't even imagine what God has prepared for you, his people. The joys, the delights, the blessings that God has prepared. And since he's omnipotent, and since there's no lacking to his power, he can certainly prepare something that we can't even imagine at this time. That we can't fully comprehend at this time. Nevertheless, what God has revealed to us in his word about heaven makes earthly pleasures, a fading and flickering match 
in comparison to the glory of the noonday sun. God gives us some descriptions of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 through 4. There we read, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away." first description that I would like to emphasize in this portion of scripture is this. God will permanently dwell in all of his glory among his people. Which was pictured for us in the Ark of the Covenant dwelling among Israel in the Old Testament according to Leviticus 26 verses 11 and 12. Whereas the Son of God became flesh and tabernacled among us for some 33 years, God will forever tabernacle among us in heaven. We will no longer have to cry out, Lord, how long? How long will it be until I know the face-to-face? Until I behold thy glory and stand in thy presence to praise and worship thee with unfettered voice and enjoy unbroken communion with thee. There was God himself is our first and chief reward in heaven. For all the blessedness of heaven is in him and from him and through him. He is our exceedingly great reward first and foremost. Secondly, all the miseries of this life will forever be removed, according to this passage. All sin, even those besetting sins of which we've spoken, temptation to sin, desires to sin, the hurts, heartaches, fears, loneliness will be all swallowed up in the joy, peace, and contentment of the Lord. If we have the capacity to enjoy to some degree by God's grace that which God has created in this world amidst all of the misery that surrounds us, what will be our capacity, I ask? What will be our capacity to enjoy the eternal glories of the new heaven and new earth which far excel the fading glories of this creation when all misery will be abolished. The capacity of our glorified souls and our glorified bodies to enjoy the glories of heaven will know 
no bounds except that we are finite creatures that will know no creaturely bounds we'll be so full and so complete of joy and happiness so full and complete of righteousness and holiness of peace and security that anything that you have experienced that even scratched the surface in the moment of time here would fade in comparison. The second question, will heaven be non-material or material? Well, dear ones, heaven is not a state of mind, just as hell is not a state of mind, a mere state of mind. But is a place. There in Proverbs, the way of life is above to the wise. It is above earth. It must be material if those who have gone there with glorified material bodies do dwell there, such as Enoch, who was taken into heaven in his body, as Elijah was taken to heaven bodily, as the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave is there bodily, it must be of material nature. Yes, there are souls that are there, spirits of just men made perfect. Yes, there are those that are present in heaven as well. But there is coming a time at the time of the resurrection in which heaven will be occupied by glorified saints with resurrected bodies. And therefore, I would submit it must be material in nature. God will renovate the present heaven and earth, not destroy it, but renovate it and make paradise lost, paradise restored, according to Revelation 21.1. God says he creates a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the earth, the old heaven and earth have passed away. God brings in a new heaven and a new earth. I would further ask, why have, if it is not material in nature, why have a resurrected body? If there is not a material heaven and a material earth. Well, what will we do in heaven? A third question. I remember when I was young, uninformed, unenlightened, thinking, boy, you know, of all the things I do here on the earth and thinking, boy, heaven, I can't do any of these things. Heaven's going to be a very boring place. How wrong I was as a child. Thank God, by His grace, I put aside or put away childish thoughts and childish things. Heaven is not a boring place. One through three. We will even praise and glorify God for his destruction and his punishment of the ungodly who are in hell. Some commentators have suggested that just as in the case of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, it appears that 
that there was knowledge, uh, whether actual sight or, or knowledge of the suffering of those in hell as well as the blessedness of those in heaven. That, the, that one of the curses upon the wicked and the ungodly in hell is that they will know or see the blessedness of the righteous in heaven. And one of the blessings of the righteous in heaven for which they'll be able to glorify God for His grace in saving them and for His justice in punishing the wicked is that they'll be able to see those who are suffering or know the suffering of those who are in hell. But we will praise and we will glorify the Lord our God for all eternity as He is absolutely deserving of. If that is what we're going to be doing for all eternity, don't you think it's a very good idea to begin to enjoy every opportunity we have to worship and to glorify God here upon the earth, whether it's corporate worship, family worship, or secret worship, and not to begrudge these times spent with the living God? What will we do in heaven, secondly, well, we will commune with God. Not only worship Him, but we will commune, we will speak, we will talk, we will, we will fellowship with the living God, with His holy angels. Can you imagine talking with Gabriel and with all of His saints that we find in the Scriptures, with those martyrs of the faith, to be able to sit down and talk with them? which implies that we will know them. We will know them. Matthew 8.11 In the kingdom of heaven, many will come from the east and the west, from various directions, the Gentiles, and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sitting down has the idea of fellowship and communing with these departed saints. In Matthew 17.3 Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration recognized who Moses and Elijah were. They knew. They knew who they were. So we will know in heaven and have that knowledge, I believe, who the various saints are. And we will commune with them and share fellowship with them. Again, unbroken fellowship and communion. Thirdly, we will in heaven serve the Lord, I would suggest, in various capacities. In the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, verses 21 and 23 in particular, there you find those who were given certain amounts of talents were to invest them, were to use them for the glory of God, and their reward is that they are given more ability or capacity or talents to be able to glorify God and serve the Lord. I would suggest that this would imply that we will be given responsibilities in heaven, that we will get, be given uh, jobs that we will serve the Lord in various capacities. We won't simply be idly sitting around and doing nothing. 
We will be busy. Even as the angels are busy fulfilling the will of God, so we will be doing the same thing in heaven. But as I said, boredom is the last thing that we will experience in heaven. Will there be another question? Will there be degrees of reward in heaven? Yes, again, I, I would submit that there will be degrees of reward in heaven according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which specifically addresses ministers, but I believe the principle applies to all believers, where it says, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, that is, suffer the loss of the reward, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This would tend to indicate again that there are degrees of reward. Degrees of reward for faithfulness here upon the earth. The same parable that I alluded to earlier in Matthew chapter 25 would tend to indicate again degrees of reward. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 23, the disciples bring, John, James and John bring their mother. And the mother says to Jesus, I have a request to make of you. I'd like to have my two sons to sit on your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom of heaven. The rest of the disciples become quite upset with James and John over this. But the Lord Jesus says, in effect, it's not my place to make that appointment, but it has been determined who will sit on my right hand and my left hand. And so this would again seem to imply that those places, that would seem to be a, a special place of privilege. Speaks of the twelve tribes, uh, or the twelve apostles, sitting upon twelve thrones, ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. This again, the various places in the scripture would tend to indicate that there will be degrees of reward in heaven. What they are, we're not told in, in their entirety, but I can share this with you. No one will envy or covet the reward of another, but will perfectly rejoice in the rewards of others. Finally, it would appear that those who receive such rewards cast them before the Lord, even as the saints the elders cast their crowns before the Lord in Revelation 4.10. They will cast the rewards before the Lord, acknowledging that it is God who is to be glorified for such rewards, not they themselves. In closing today, I submit to you and I even challenge you that if you as well as myself spent 15 minutes a day reflecting on the glories of, heaven, of our heavenly reward which God has prepared for us, it would transform and change our day. I submit 
that if we would reflect upon the reward of heaven in the midst of our weaknesses, sins, temptations, fears, trials, illnesses, our lives would be changed. And I submit that if we were even to reflect upon the reward of heaven when we succeed and prosper and gain in this life, that it would turn all pride at our attainments into humility before the Lord, our God. Remember, dear ones, Israel. Listen closely. Remember Israel who did not enter into the promised land because they did not believe. They had the true religion. They had the pure worship of God. They had God's covenant. They had the presence of God. They had the faithful ministers of God. They had the gospel of salvation preached unto them. But they did not receive the promise of life and they did not enter into the promised land. But not only did they not enter into the promised land, they did not enter into heaven to which the promised land pointed. They preferred to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. What little pleasure there was in Egypt. They preferred to go back and to have their leeks and onions, their flesh pots. That's what they wanted. And so they weren't willing to endure a period of time of waiting and preparation. They weren't ready for the hardships that God brought into the life. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Just like Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. So these Israelites sold their heavenly birthright for the fading pleasures of Egypt. Let none of us, dear ones, let none of us fall short of the heavenly promise today due to our own unbelief and due to our love of this world and its pleasures. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? Please stand with me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, We are finite creatures and cannot fully grasp at this point the glories of heaven. But, oh Lord, we pray that by our reflection, our contemplation, our meditation of what Thou hast revealed to us concerning heaven, that Thou would give to us perseverance in the faith, that Thou would give to us the grace to overcome our besetting sins, to grow in our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and not succumb to the fears which so easily plague us and overwhelm us. To not give in, O Lord, to the loneliness that can be ours, but to see that in heaven, O Lord, is our, is our reward. For Thou, O Lord, art our great and exceedingly great reward and all that Thou hast promised us is realized in heaven. 
We thank thee, our God, that thou hast given to us such promises that, Lord, we are also reminded that we cannot turn our backs upon such gracious promises made unto us. For, Father, as we will learn next week, to have these promises made unto us and to reject them and turn our backs upon them is to turn the heat up seven times hotter even in hell itself. It is to aggravate our sin. O Father, we pray that thy love, thy compassion, thy mercy in inviting us to come to Christ to receive of this heavenly reward would drive us to our knees. But, O Father, we pray that Thou would use the fear of the Lord as well to drive us unto the Lord, to show us, O Lord, what our sins deserve, to show us, O Lord, how helpless we are to rescue ourselves from eternal torment in hell, and that we would find solace and rest and peace and joy and salvation and righteousness in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.